0: Well, we are um, a couple weeks removed from our our Christmas season uh, with all the songs and festivities uh, that we had and we celebrated. One of the songs that we sang during Christmas uh, season, I know we sang it here, you probably heard it uh, all over Rockford if you were were around. was that famous song of uh, Isaac Watts, Joy to the World. If you know the words, let's just... um, And we can say it. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Good. That's a song that's really a call for joy. Joy to the world, right? Let heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and heaven. And let it sing. Joy to the world. Why? There's a reason. Because Jesus has come. The king has come to earth. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. That's how the stanza begins, that's how the stanza ends, right? Joy to the world, let heaven and nature sing. But but in there there's also another theme from the first stanza of Joy to the World. It's this. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. The idea is the king is coming and let earth be ready to receive her king. You know, when you have guests over to your house for dinner or for some other event, you are going to make preparations in your home, I I trust, I know at our house, whenever people are coming over, it's always scurrying about. And I know that if relatives come from out of state, you're going to make some preparations to make sure their accommodations are okay. And if a special guest is going to come and maybe speak at some organization that you are in charge of or a part of, you make special arrangements for them to come. And when Jesus comes to earth, There are special arrangements that need to take place. And what was true in the first century with the coming of Christ is every bit as true for us as well, the second coming of Jesus. Think about this. If you knew that Jesus would return tomorrow, how would you act today? Because that's the sum of the call. Let every heart prepare Him. Let's prepare for the King coming. Like, What sort of preparations would you make if you knew that Christ is coming back tomorrow? Would you pray some? Would you spend some time in the scriptures reading your, your Bible? Was there sin? Is there sin you might repent of? Is, maybe you'd speak with others. Maybe you'd confess your sin to others. Maybe you'd seek to be right with God. I, I remember a, a businessman that I, I knew, a very influential man, a godly Christian leader, done much for the cause of Christ. He had a medical condition in his heart that really debilitated him. And one of his last hopes that he had, he had a heart surgery. And he knew the chance of survival of that surgery were... I don't know what percentage there were, but there was an opportunity that maybe he wouldn't get through that surgery. And so before he underwent the knife, uh, I remember I heard that he worked the phones and uh, just sought to call as many people as he could think of just to smooth the way with them, to confess his sins to them, to to make things right. And I think he was just trying to clear his conscience before surgery, knowing that if he never woke up again, that his conscience would be clear. So it turned out, he died quickly after the surgery and entered glory with his Savior. But he knew that, that he may meet his Savior soon, and so he wanted to make, make every effort in his heart to prepare room for Christ. Is that how you would act, maybe, if Jesus would return tomorrow? Well, that's the thrust of the application that comes from our text. I've entitled my message this morning, Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room. It's what's taking place in the days before Jesus comes. Before Jesus came, it's really the call for us to take take stock of our own hearts, to prepare Him room in our own hearts as well. So, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles, the Book of Mark. Last week, we're in Chapter One, Verse One. This week, we're in Chapter One, Verses Two through Eight. Gives the account of John the Baptist. It gives the account of John the Baptist preparing the way for the coming of Jesus, who comes in Verse Nine, which we will look at next week. Here's our text, Mark chapter 1, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would search our hearts in this text as many were preparing for the arrival, the advent of Jesus in Jerusalem. I pray that we as well would have hearts prepared to await Your second arrival here upon the earth when indeed You come. So God, help, help me to communicate the thrust of these words. Help God to convict our hearts where we need to be like these people in confessing our sins. That we would learn from John the Baptist, that we would learn from the, the words you have for us here. We just trust that you're the one that opens hearts to understand. I pray you do that now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the Gospel begins with John the Baptist. Or really, the beginning of the, the Gospel begins before that. If you look at verses 2 and 3, I'm not sure if your Bible sets them apart at all, but they are um, quotes from the Old Testament. So my, my first point here is the call of these Old Testament saints as preparing the way. Verses 2 and 3, where it says here, Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord and make His paths straight. See, the coming of Jesus was no surprise. Prophets from long ago had written of His coming. They had anticipated that Messiah would come. But before Messiah would come, there's one who would come before the Messiah to prepare His way. All four Gospels identify this man as John the Baptist. And all four Gospels quote the same Scripture right here in verse 2. Behold, I send My messenger ahead of you. Make ready the way of the Lord. That's included in Matthew chapter 3 verse 3. The same quote. It's included in Mark here, chapter 1 verse 2. It's included in Luke chapter 3 verse 4. And in John chapter 1 verse 23. This is, this quote here in verse 2 comes from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. In which Malachi is prophesying of the coming of the Lord. I'm sending my messenger who will prepare your way. Listen to the second half of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming. And so you see the messenger beforehand in the first half of the verse, and then you see Jesus coming in the second half of the verse. The Lord Himself coming in the second half. Indeed, that took place shortly after the appearing of John the Baptist. Jesus came onto the scene and He definitely entered the temple. He cleansed the temple early in His ministry just as had been prophesied. It was John's job to be the forerunner to the Messiah to announce His arrival. He was, as it says there in verse 3, He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He saw Himself as a voice. One shouting and proclaiming and shouting out, make ready the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. Verse 3 comes from Isaiah 40. verse three, Which, like the quotation there in verse 2, speaks about the preparation that must take place before the coming of the Lord. Now, it says in the next verse, in Isaiah 40, verse 4, maybe you know these from the Messiah, handles Messiah, "...let every valley be lifted up, and let every mountain be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and let the rugged terrain become a broad valley." These words describe what it means to make His path straight right there at the end of verse 3. The idea is the way must be smooth before the Messiah comes. Then the implication is that He might be received with joy. So people's hearts are already there. Okay. So if you've been listening carefully, you might say, wait a minute, there's a problem here in this text. Did you catch it? Anyone catch the problem at all? Nope? Zoom right over you. That's, that's just fine. Well... Well, I, I said that verse 2 is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And I said that verse 3 is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. But Mark says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Is it Malachi? Is it Isaiah? Is it both of them? And um, people who are critical of the Bible say, oh, there's an error in the Bible. Is there? And I just say, no, there's not. It's not really a problem. It's a problem if you don't understand how old New Testament writers handle the Old Testament, because, and expect them to really quote the Old Testament like we are taught in our high school and college classes. Make sure you exactly quote, make sure you cite your t- citations exactly right. Well, when the biblical writers wrote, there were no chapters in the Old Testament, um, there were no verses in the Old Testament. These didn't come till like 1200 AD, 1500 AD. So when they're writing, they're not referring to actual verses and scriptures. Furthermore, the writers in the New Testament are often very loose in the way that they refer to the Old Testament. And in this case, Mark, I think, just gives the dominant prophet. Isaiah is much more dominant, and he speaks about him covering both these. I don't think that Mark didn't know that the first one was from Malachi and the second was from Isaiah. I think he knew this. He was just like his contemporaries who often deal with the Old Testament in this way. So, it's not a problem. But regardless of how you deal with that, these are two very well-known passages in the Old Testament. Someone may quibble about, well, he said Isaiah rather than Malachi. Well, nobody quibbles about how well these passages were known in the time of, of Jesus. They're common passages in the Old Testament. They predicted the comings of Christ. Malachi prophesied somewhere about 400 B.C. Isaiah about 700 B.C. And they, they prophesy the coming of Christ, but these verses even prophesy of the coming of the forerunner who'd come before Jesus. And in ancient times, it was customary for messengers to come before a king to announce his arrival. In fact, king often sent pioneers ahead of them to remove the obstacles, to maybe negotiate peace or negotiate how things are going to be before the king would actually arrive at a particular destination. And the same is true of The Messiah, before his arrival, one would come to announce his arrival. But merely more than announcing, he is actually doing some preparing work. That's the role of John. He's he's going to prepare your way, it says at the end of verse 2. He's going to cry out, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You know, here in the United States, we have people who go ahead and prepare the way. It's called the secret service. Prepares the way for the President of the United States and all of his travels. If he's gonna go, the President of the United States is gonna go someplace, the Secret Service will be there ahead of time, maybe days ahead of time, sectioning off streets, sectioning off buildings, performing security checks, and preparing the way all, all the way. And then maybe there's an announcement before the President would come to speak someplace. There'll be this music. Wait, how's the music go? Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. And then up steps the President. and That's exactly what's happening here. John the Baptist is, is in charge of preparing the way. He's in charge of announcing the one, the Messiah, who is indeed coming. But rather than saying, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, he's saying, ladies and gentlemen the Messiah. Way more important role than any announcing of the President's coming. Let's look further into exactly how it will be prepared. It's not John the Baptist didn't come preparing with security. He came preparing with... My son's at his eye on this thing the whole trip. The whole service. I said, David, you see what's up there? <gasps> And he wants it. He wants to play with it, right? After service, David, you can play with this. What? What is this? What'd you call this? A bulldozer, tractor, dirt mover. It's not dump truck, right? Earth mover. What do you got, Gage? What do you call it? A loader. All right. Good. Whatever it is, that's what John the Baptist was seeking to do. He's seeking to prepare the way. You can think about road, pavement things because that's the language here, right? preparing the way, and then Isaiah verse 40, chapter 40, verse 4, making the valleys and lifting them up, right? filling in the valleys and taking the mountains and, and bringing them down, taking away from the mountains, putting in the valleys, and then in the rough places, right, smoothing them out, taking the earth grader and smoothing them out and the rugged terrain into a broad, flat valley. Now, obviously, there's symbolic language here. John the Baptist didn't come driving one of these loaders making the way but it's a symbolism that we ought to look at and think about he's actually preparing the way smoothing it out in the hearts of people so that people might receive their king this is my second point the first point is really preparing the way second point preparing the hearts that's what John the Baptist was doing he's seeking to prepare the hearts of people for the coming of the Messiah and and really these points are the same One speaks in general, the task of the forerunner. The other speaks in specifics, verses 4-8, through about how John did this. One is the, the prophetic call, and one is actually John the Baptist's voice coming there. And so we see the detail about how it is that John prepared the hearts of the people for the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist appeared, verse 4, in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John here is identified simply as the Baptist. You might call it the, the baptizer is literally what that one is. John, the one baptizing is how it comes about. The Baptist is a fair translation, it's a good translation. Baptism simply means immersion. It means dunking. It means engulfing. It means getting people wet all over. In ancient literature, it's used over and over and over again. I was just looking this past week about how baptizo is used in the old ancient literature. And it's often used about ships that have sunk and are at the bottom of the sea. Those ships have been baptized. The word is used to describe soldiers passing through the river. In fact, one, one, one ancient text said this, that they were baptized as far as their waist So, as they went through the river and sloshed through the river, these soldiers were, and the river was up to their waist, they were baptized as far as their waist, right? Uh, Above their waist, they weren't baptized. Below their waist, they were baptized. Just what what baptism means. When a flood came upon a region, uh, one, one writer spoke about how the animals, some were baptized and drowned, and others escaped the high ground and were saved. See, it's not just a matter of, of getting wet, although, although some might argue that. You know, there's a discussion one time um, between a, a Presbyterian and a Baptist. And I'm not sure if you've heard this before, but there's a time when they're arguing about the mode of baptism and what what really matters. And the, the Presbyterian, who believes in infant sprinkling, would said to the Baptist, he said, "Well, now if someone like um, gets his feet wet, is that are they baptized there?" And he said. Well, no, of course not. And and what what if, what if they're wet up to their waist? Are they are they baptized then? <laughs> no, they're not. What if they're what if they're wet like up to their neck? Are they baptized then? No. What if they what if they're just just a little bit of their forehead is, is just above water. Are they baptized then? No. Oh. So it is just the top of the forehead that matters then, right? That's the argument. But baptism, you no, know, no, no. It's when you're totally dunked, totally immersed. That's what baptism means. One ancient writer said that uh, objects were floating on top of the water. They weren't baptized, but they rather they were lifted out because Baptist, to be baptized means you sunk down, but if you're floating on the top, you're not baptized. And so that's what baptism means. I mean, there's no, there's no debate about that. You just look at the literature. In fact, I've got a book, The Meaning and Use of Baptized It's a whole book written about the meaning of that verb. That's what it means. John was receiving those who came and he was immersing them in the water. Now we read here that he was, he was appeared in the wilderness ties us back to verse 3. And there is a tie here where it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And Mark wanted to make sure that we knew that this one in the wilderness is where John the Baptist was. You say, okay, where's the wilderness? Well, it was east of Jerusalem, down along the Jordan Rift, the the Jordan Valley that takes the water from the Sea of Galilee and brings it down all the way down to the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, if you will. And according to John chapter 3, verse 23, we know that Jesus was baptizing there because there was much water there. There was a river there, so he could baptize there. And as you read the other accounts in the Gospels, you find that his, his ministry wasn't just one place. It kind of drifted up and down the whole Jordan River. So sometimes it was up near Galilee. People up in Galilee kind of went there. And sometimes it was even down near Jerusalem, where the people of Jerusalem could easily travel there as well. And we read about this baptism that it is it's a baptism. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, when John was preaching, he was preaching that, that people would turn from their sins and that they would call upon the Lord. Alright, baptism is this. you walk your repentance is this. You're walking one way with your life. And then you turn 180 and then you walk the other way. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a, is a turning. It's a, it's a turning around of your life. And what John was preaching was, turn your life around and make it right. You've been walking in a wicked way, but repent from your wicked ways and walk in the righteous ways. That's what John's message was. And it's a sign of the repentance And the sign of the forgiveness that came with the repentance, he was baptizing them, cleansing them, dunking them in the Jordan River. In John's ministry, you can see here why I said it's preparing the hearts. Is it because it was preparing the the hearts of people? It was softening them for the coming of Christ. Because I just say this nothing softens your heart like confession of sin. You want a soft heart? Confess your sins and your heart will be soft. And that's what John was seeking to cultivate as they confessed their sins. As they received forgiveness of sins, he then was cleansing them as a sign for that. We we see a bit more detail about his baptism, baptizing ministry there in verse 5. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins... John was taking these people, they were confessing them, again, cleansing them spiritually. It's a a sign in the water. Now, it's not just simply anybody who wanted to come to him. He baptized. You can read in other Gospel accounts when the the Pharisees and Sadducees came, he rejected them. He refused to baptize them because he said, show forth fruits of your repentance. Repentance was the qualification to get in the water. And John was baptizing those who responded to his message Verse 4. He was baptizing those who repented of their sins. Verse 4. He was baptizing those who were confessing their sins. Verse 5. And let's just make it clear. It's not the water itself that cleansed them of their sins. Rather, the water was a sign of their cleansing. A result of their repentance. If the water was what cleansed, then Paul would have, said, or John would have said, "Come Pharisees, come Sadducees, who don't have repentance now, they don't have plenty, but if I get them wet this water, the forgiveness is going to be there." And that's obviously not the case. But rather, it was a, a sign of people having repented, having confessed their sins. It's interesting, looking at verse five, it, it says that they were, he baptized them in the Jordan River, and they were confessing their sins. So, so the idea here is just that they were standing in the water with John talking about their sins that they had forgiven, the sins that they had confessed, the, things that, the sins that they had committed. And in talking about that, then he... Baptize them. So obviously you see a, a repentant heart there that is confessing sin. You see a, a soft heart there. And I just say everything that John did then carries over into the New Testament. Gives a perfect picture of what baptism is in the church today. We practice at Rock Valley Bible Church called Believer's Baptism. When people come to faith in Christ, Scriptures are clear. They ought to be baptized. If you're a believer in Christ, you should be baptized. So I think it's a matter of obedience, following the Lord. Uh, In fact, just just look back. Matthew 28. It's just right on the opposite side of your page. Maybe you've got to turn back. Right at the end, uh, the last three verses of Matthew 28, Jesus gives His great commission to His disciples, which really is to us as well. gives a vision for us what we are as a church, what we are to do. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, verse 18, Matthew 20, "...all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations." Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's Jesus, verse 18, saying, I've got all the authority, therefore go as my representative. And as you go out, here's what you need to do. You need to make disciples. You say, how do I make disciples? Well, you baptize them and you teach them. Just right there. In verse 19 speaks about baptizing them. Verse 20 speaks about teaching them. Now, it's not that you just go out and pour water on people or throw them in swimming pools. That's not what you do. You, you you teach them. You're making disciples. You preach the Gospel. You see them converted. When they're converted, then they're baptized immediately. Conversion and baptism are kind of synonymous because when you confess your sins, you want to follow Christ, you'll follow in obedience and will be baptized. And then you continue with that by, by teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded you. That's the pattern, just right there. When, when people believe, you baptize them. We don't have time today, but if you just look at the book of Acts, you just go through the book of Acts, walk, walk through it, and look for what happens when people believe in Christ in the book of Acts. They're always baptized. People believe, they're baptized. And why are they baptized? It's an outward sign to say, I've been forgiven of Christ. I'm identifying myself with Christ, is what it is. And if you find and look at those who are baptized, you'll find that in every instance they have first believed. This, by the way, is why we don't practice infant baptism because infants don't believe. It, it, it doesn't make sense to take a, a baby and dunk it or sprinkle it. To me, in, in my standpoint, I know there's lots of evangelical friends of mine who believe that. I don't. Because the, the biblical pattern is always you, you repent of your sin, you confess the Lord, you, you confess your sins, you understand forgiveness of Christ, and then you are baptized yeah, here at Rock Valley Bible Church, for some of you don't know, some of you, you do know, uh, we don't have a baptismal font here, um, which is actually, personally, I think it's kind of nice because we get to do things like the, uh, they did in the New Testament. The New Testament, they baptized like at the river. They baptized out where there was much water there. They gathered a crowd, very public thing, just like John's baptism. There for all to see, all to hear. It's an opportunity for people to say, under heaven and in front of lots of people, just say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I have trusted in Him. I have sinned. I've sinned in these ways. God has forgiven me of my sin. I, I trust Him. I know forgiveness. And I'm here just to symbolically demonstrate my forgiveness those who give testimony of saving faith in Christ, what they were like before coming to Christ, how they repented and turned and believed and how God has changed them as a result after that, then they are baptized. Take, we take them out to the water in Olson Lake and we baptize them, dunk them. as a sign of the cleansing they experience. experienced. All right? Those are great services, right? Those of you who know them, yes? Amen? Amen. They're great things. And I say this, if you have not been baptized, you've repented of your sins, you believe believed in Christ, you've cried out to Him to be merciful to you, a sinner, You should change that. I think it's a matter of obedience. Talk to me. We'll see what we can do. Maybe you'll join us this summer. Well, there were many people around watching this. If you look at verse 5, it says, all the country of Judea was going out to Him, and all the people of Jerusalem... Now, obviously, we're talking hyperbole here. It wasn't that Jerusalem was left abandoned and desolate in this days, but, but maybe a ways. Almost everybody then, then went out there at one time or another. The crowds were coming to see Him. So, I want you to picture in your mind John the Baptist, the river, and I want you to picture thousands of people around what's taking place there. Scores and scores being baptized are confessing their sins. Next, 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 people are just confessing their sins and being baptized. And it's interesting that when you, you try to go there, it's not an easy trek. From Jerusalem to the Jordan River, it's about 20 miles, which you can do. 20 miles is about an average day walk for somebody back then and, and now as well. But it's a 4,000 foot difference from Jerusalem up in the mountains down to the Jordan River. That's a long way. That's a hard, that's a hard journey. It took them a day to get there. So it's not like, hey, they just kind of showed up at their local church. No, it said, okay, let's take a day journey to Colorado where we're going to go and see this baptism thing. That's what they were doing, taking a, a day trip to get there, probably spending the night, being there, confessing their sins, being baptized, and maybe coming back, probably hanging out for a few days around there. But coming from all around, not just the city of Jerusalem itself, but also Mark here mentions just even the Jordan, the, the, the country of Judea, which is in the south. Israel. They were there. Now, it really shouldn't surprise anyone that there were so many people because before John was ever born, Angel told Zechariah's father, he, John the Baptist, will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Prophesied before he was even born. So, it's, it's no accident that there are lots of people there. But I just say this, why were they coming? What made John's ministry so attractive? Was it his physical appearance? I, I, I don't think so physical his diet and his dress are commented or talked about in verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. Now kids, you guys know about John the Baptist enough. So, to you it's not so strange. But it is strange. I mean, the whole fact that Mark would even mention what his dress was like showed that he was dressing different than your average Joe Blow. This uh, wasn't everybody's dress. This was, by the way, the common dress and diet of the prophet. In Hindu lands, the holy men walk around in orange garments and, um, and bare feet and all this chalk stuff on their head. That's just like the holy picture, what it means. In Buddhist lands, Buddhists, they, they walk around in these deep, dark, red, crimson, colored robes, and um, oftentimes are their ha- heads shaved. That's what it means to be godly in the Buddhist culture. Well, in Israel, the holy men walked around with hairy garments and leather belts. That's what Elijah wore. In Second Kings 1, verse 8, we're told about Elijah, how he was a hairy man. I Meaning he was unkept in some sense. Probably had a hairy garment with a leather girdle around his loins. This was the, this was the, the clothes of Elijah. And that's what John the Baptist wore. And it is appropriate for... For John the Baptist to have worn that because he was indeed Elijah. In Mark chapter 9, we won't turn there now, but there was a time where the, the disciples were talking about Elijah. I, I thought Elijah must come first. How is it the Messiah is coming? Doesn't Elijah have to come first? And Jesus said, I tell you, Elijah did come. And they did whatever they wanted to him. they killed him. That's John the Baptist. Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah. It's appropriate that John the Baptist then wore the clothes of Elijah now, John didn't have to live this way. It's not like he was poor and, and had to live uh, like that. His father, Zechariah, you remember from Luke chapter 1, was a high priest. His father was one of the top ruling members of the Sanhedrin. Even one time, he was the one representative cho- chosen out of the year, out of the whole nation, to go into the Holy of Holies. So, he was, he was somewhat upper echelon. It maybe didn't make him rich, but it didn't make him poor either. And he certainly had enough to provide for him. And John could have afforded some other... Uh, garb than a bed sheet and a few grasshoppers out in the backyard. By dressing this way, John was intentionally living a life of humility and poverty. His clothing wasn't comfortable, it wasn't so fashionable, his food wasn't particularly tasty, but it was probably the the common food that was out in the wilderness that he could grab and he could sustain himself on that. And I have to say this. We think about the success of John's ministry. This is kind of a segue, by the way, parentheses. The feel of our age is such that in order to have a successful ministry that's going to attract other people, you need to have attractive personalities. right? And you need to have a big band with lots of sound. And you need to put attractive buildings with attractive programs together to put on attractive worship services. And John the Baptist didn't have any of that, and he had crowds and crowds and crowds of people. I think it's because the reality is that God will use those whom He delights to use, whether rich or poor, whether in the city or in the wilderness. God will accomplish His work in His way. That's what shows with John the Baptist. And I think, though, <clears throat> there is something about a man who's passionate in what he believes, and his passion, his godliness, his devotion to the Lord. And others will be attracted to that when they see His love for the Lord and His passion and heart for God. That is something that will draw people even to follow the most unattractive people, if you will. It's because God has a way of letting the inner person of the heart shine through so people can see that. And that's what people really want to follow. Anyway, true believers want to follow that. And I would just say also for you, you know, as so you seek to share the Gospel out wherever you are, just let the hidden person of your life shine through. And when that does, there will be some people who are attracted to you. I mean, it never fails, right? Someone's having a marriage problem. Who are they going to talk to? Those with stable marriage, who are walking rightly with the Lord. Or those who are facing some spiritual crisis. Where are they going to go? They're going to go... And to those who are spiritually sound and strong. And so, just as you are spiritually sound and strong, don't worry about trying to be so attracted to win people or be edgy. Just, just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and watch the kind of people that God will draw being attracted to that. Because people saw John the Baptist and he was a passionate man and they were attracted to that. Why? Why were so many people coming? Why were so many people going out to confess their sins? I mean, if I said, okay, well, take out your bulletin here and kind of on the back, yeah, we've got a, an announcement here. Um, let's see, next, let's see, two weeks from next Sunday, we're going to have a, um, a meeting, you know, out by the um, Rockcut State Park, and we're going to confess our sins to one another, and we are going to just put them out there, seek God's forgiveness. If I said that, how many people do you think are going to show up to that service? less than the prayer meeting. Okay, It's just an anxiety about that. John the Baptist, they're out there confessing their sins. You probably aren't going to get a crowd. But the only way, how are you getting a crowd? It's because the Spirit of God is moving. And I think this is the key to understanding John the Baptist's ministry. He was sent as a forerunner to, to stir the excitement, to stir the passion of the... The people of God, and that was john 's rule to prepare their hearts to, to get an increased sensitivity between, before them and the Lord that they might, might be clean and might, might clear their consciences and ready for the Lord to come and, and I think it was divine god putting in the hearts of people, just a, a desire and a heart and a passion for God as the messianic age was just about to dawn, and, and John knew that he, his role was was temporary at best um, you know, he wasn 't looking to set up his his kingdom he He was a humble man. In fact, look how humble he is in verse 7. He was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Now in that day, the business of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of servants was to remove the sandals from a master's feet. Um, Feet back then are much more dirty than they are today. Today we have shoes and sidewalks and... um, our, our feet aren't nearly as smelly as they were back then, but back then they had sandals, open feet, they, they'd they walk through mud, they'd walk through dirt, they'd walk through dung, smelly there, natural body odor as you'd walk and you didn't have showers all the time, didn't shower for days, and then you would be a servant and you would get down on all fours and you would put your nose right there a foot away from the feet in order to take the sandals off. That is a a low life task. And John says, Of Jesus, I'm not worthy even to do that to Jesus. Just just exalting Jesus and lifting him high. And I think that's the humility of John. John knew that his ministry would soon be eclipsed by John by Jesus. In fact another place he said, He must increase and I must decrease. John knew that his ministry was just temporary, pointing to to Jesus. He wasn't look he wasn't looking to build his own empire and to you know, have the first John the Baptist church or anything like that. He was looking just to point to Jesus and when Jesus got the attention, he gladly stepped aside. Actually, God pulled him aside Actually, at that time. He didn't have to step aside as he was imprisoned. We'll read about that in Mark chapter 6. But in, in verse 8 also, we, we see about him putting Jesus ahead of himself just a preparatory ministry. He said, he said, I baptize you with water or in water but He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And then the picture of John, John just says, my baptism was anything but supernatural. I mean, it wasn't forced or caused. I, I can take repentance, I take repentant people and I just put them in water. That's easy to do. But look what Jesus will do. He's going to do something which is entirely different. He is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. You will be immersed and dunked and saturated and covered by the Holy Spirit. And when you think about what's the best place to understand that, go to the book of Acts. And again, this is another thing. We don't have time today to fully look at this. But when Jesus was with His disciples after the resurrection, He told them, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that came about the day of Pentecost when they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues and the Spirit was giving them utterance. And then several years later, it happened when the Gospel went to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. And Peter, reporting back, tied those two messages together and he said, the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles just as He did upon us in the beginning. And I remember the Word of the Lord, how it said, John baptized with water, but you baptized with the Holy Spirit. That many days from now. There's a there's a difference of what, what's taking place in these people's lives. What begun in the early church continues today. Romans 8 speaks about the Holy Spirit dwells in believers. If you believe and trust in Christ, you believe you're immersed, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. We are in one spirit. We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we're all made to drink of the one spirit. So if you believe in Christ. The Holy Spirit will come, and you will be baptized into Him. He'll dwell in your heart to empower you to walk in the newness of life. It's kind of a brief, a brief overview. It's just an empowering the Holy Spirit will have, and John's ministry paved the way for greater things to come. But he was just there; he was just preparing the hearts. Okay, I'm, I'm going to work. I'm going to start now. We've gone through the text. I'm going to work on on closing my message now. All right. Because I want us to really deal with this heart matter for ourselves as well, not not just kind of some okay that was good for them, but really let's bring it to us. Let's imagine us being back, back living back there at that time. How our, our our hearts be there? It's interesting here that um, when John came preaching a baptism repentance, the Jews knew about baptism. That's now, nowhere prescribed in the Old Testament. But they knew about baptism. They practiced baptism. They practiced baptism for confession of sins. They practiced immersion as a sign of symbolic cleansing. Particularly they practiced it when a Gentile was a God-fearer and wanted to come into the synagogue. And after they went through the the teaching and the training and they understood the law, they understood the Lord, and they understood His mercy and His grace and, and threw themselves upon the mercy of God, they would take that Gentile and have them be baptized so as to be able to come into their local synagogue. Now, there was always some distance because they're a Gentile and they're not part of the chosen race, but they they could come in and experience some ceremonial cleansing. They were kept out of some of the um, rituals but because there's a court of the Gentiles, but, but at least they could come in somewhat. But they forced them to be baptized as a display of their cleanliness before the Lord and and the interesting thing here is John the Baptist, when he's baptizing, he's not baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jews. And that's a huge issue of significance here. He so said they're coming from Judea, they're coming from Jerusalem. It was the Jews who were coming. The Jews who were going to John to be baptized. And I think the issue there is that God was preparing the hearts of the Jews to receive the Lord. And John's ministry was a ministry of stirring among the people of God. And it took great humility for Jews to confess their sins and to be involved in this, in this rite that was only for Gentiles to come in. That's application for us because we're insiders, just like them. And we're, we're part of the chosen people, if you will. We're part of the church. And the application comes to us are you prepared for the coming of the Lord? Is your heart soft before Him? Are you confessing your sin? The application here isn't for us to go get baptized again. The application here for us is our hearts at Rock Valley Bible Church to be, to be soft like the Jews' hearts were. Because we can play the religious game. we got a church building. we got spiritual activities. We're good people. But you know the, the people who had the buildings and the activities and were good people? You know who those people were called? the Pharisees, and Jesus hated them. But those who had soft hearts, Jesus loved them. And that's what He's calling us to do, to have soft hearts, to be open with our sin. Because see, we, we come here not because we're, we're great people and God all figured out. We come here because we're sinners who we're saved by God's grace. We've got to always remember that. Lest there be this arrogance when we rub against non-believers, non-believers can detect that a mile away. But when non-believers sense that, boy, we are sinners like they are, but we found the cleansing and they're still dirty because they haven't believed in Jesus. There's a, there's a difference there. It's a matter when we will be open and honest with our sin. Almost 20 years ago, a wave of revival swept across America. Starting college campuses, in the land, college students gathering for time of confession and restoration. Students would, would stand up and publicly confess their sins and sought forgiveness for their father, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The movement started at a campus in Texas. moved and spread to Kentucky and Illinois and around um, around the United States. Uh, I had to, a chance to attend one of these meetings and these students just stood up and started confessing their sins. Sins against their fellow students. Sexual sins of the past. Cheating and lying and hatred and theft and rebellion and blasphemy. Every sin that you could think of and these people were just talking about their sin and... And how bad it was, how wrong it was, how they needed to turn to the Lord from that. And, and, and the way things worked in this, um, this revival is that they'd confess their sins, and then they'd come down from the podium just weeping. And just because they poured out their heart for the Lord, and, you know, a dozen kids would get around them and just embrace them and pray for them. And they'd pray for the and the next person's getting up and confessing sins. It's a very powerful um, service that I went to. It's a great time as people are getting right before the Lord. And I said earlier, uh, uh, the, the heart that confesses sin is a soft heart. So soft hearts, just all the way around the room, tears are flowing, rejoicing taking place as people felt the freedom of forgiveness. And that's exactly what was happening in Judea. But rather than being surrounded immediately by people, John the Baptist took them, comforted them, dunked them in water, and then as they came up out of the water, certainly there was some embracing there from other people. But sadly, the revival was short-lived. I'm intentionally vague there because the revival of John the Baptist was short-lived and the revival of the college campuses were short-lived. I've heard from those who lived on the campuses and knew those who confessed their sins. In a few weeks or months, things returned to normal. You just can't sustain that. But whatever repentance there wasn't, wasn't genuine, wasn't, wasn't lasting. And I, I do believe it's the same with Israel as well. Just after a few years of baptism of John, those same people had come out and confessed their sins demanding, were demanding that Jesus be killed. They were saying to Pilate, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And that that God had had started or prepared or there was some kind of way, at least it was ready for a while For Jesus came as He preached to the multitudes, but as it became evident what Jesus really was saying, people hated it. And J.C. Rock gives a great perspective of The ministry of John the Baptist. If ever there was one who was a popular minister for a season, John the Baptist was that man. Yet of all the crowds who came to his baptism and heard his preaching, how few, it may be feared, were actually converted. Some, we may hope, like Andrew, were guided by John to Christ, but the vast majority in all probability died in their sins. Let us remember this whenever we see a crowded church. A great congregation, no doubt, is a pleasing sight, but the thought should often come across our minds, how many of these people will reach heaven at last? It's not enough to hear and admire popular preachers. It's no proof of our conversion that we always worship in a place where there's a crowd. Let us take care that we hear the voice of Christ Himself and follow Him. And I say, church family, it's a great lesson from our text. I mean, we can read the account of John the Baptist and marvel at what the Lord was doing in those days, and rightly we should, we can rejoice at just the, 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 the hearts that we're getting right with the Lord and yet have hard hearts ourselves. But instead, what do we need? We need to have soft hearts that not only just look at that at a distance, but say, no, not only are they going to look at it from a distance, but I'm, that's where I am. My heart is soft. I'm freely confessing and admitting my sins of where I am. My message this morning is entitled, Let Every Heart Prepare in Room. It's it's kind of a play off that Christmas hymn, but it is a play that, that our hearts should be soft to, to genuinely receive Christ as He comes. Is that where your heart is? You have a soft heart this morning? That's what John is really calling us to. If you were a Jew in those days, would you be going out to the river? I think the best way to answer that question is this. Am I confessing my sins today? Because if you're not, you don't want to go to the river. We ought to be about confessing our sins and embracing Jesus. Because that's the true way to be cleansed. Let's pray. Father, I think of this revival and years gone by, recorded in all the Gospels and the many people interested in John and so many good things happening and yet not of an enduring nature. What a sad reality. The hardness of heart. God, how we need to continue to encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called the day so that none of us are deceived and the hardness of heart might not creep in. And so Lord, I would pray perhaps for those who are drifting I pray by by some measure of Your grace, You might allow some to talk to them and encourage them and bring them back into the fold. Father, for those who are here and have hard hearts, I pray You'd soften those hearts. God, that that confession of sin would freely flow, that forgiveness and grace would be extended. I, I pray most of all, Father, for Rock Valley Bible Church, just us as a body, May this be our testimony that we are, we are like those who go down to the river and, and confess our sins and repent and know the joy of forgiveness and cleansing and that we would be those who would be the good soil who would last and endure and would bear fruit from that some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Not because we're compelled by any external force, God, but because You, the Holy Spirit, are in us and empower us to desire You and to walk in Your ways. And as we get off track and as we sin, God, bring us back to a place of confession again. That we would ever walk before You in the newness of life. We, we just need You, O oh Lord. You brought revival in the days of John the Baptist. You've brought revival in other days. Bring a revival among us. It would be known as a people who love You with all of our being because you have loved us with all of your being. And so, Father, may we may we turn to you, may we look to you, and may we rejoice in you. Before I say amen, I want you to take this time. It's just, a, just an evaluation of your life. Maybe there are things you need to get right. Maybe there are phone calls you need to make Maybe things you need to say to your children, to your spouse, fellow church member, where things just aren't right. God, I pray you you'd stir deep in the hearts to to do that. And if that's you, I I just know how hard repentance is. It's so simple, but it is so incredibly difficult. I pray, Lord, that you would grant the grace in those cases. And for you, plead the Lord to give you the strength to make things right. God, because that's what we long to be. A purified church, holy to you, and just open and available to see how you would use us for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.